Good morning. Thank you, worship team. I just love that, don't you? A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more just makes me not be able to wait until glory in eternity. So welcome to worship this morning. If you're new here, then I want to welcome you and hope that you feel loved and warmly welcomed as we come together in the name of our Lord. And I hope that the joy of the Lord is with you this morning, because that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're continuing in our journey through the Upper Room Discourse. And so Jesus has been talking to his disciples a while, and in this passage that we're going to look at, we're going to see his promise that sorrow would turn into joy. Now, whenever I think about the relationship between our sorrow and the joy of the Lord, that reminds me of a seesaw. Any of you guys ever play with the seesaw as a kid? They're quite fun. They're also quite dangerous. If you want, you can look up on YouTube and find seesaw fails and get a good laugh. In fact, I had my own seesaw fail whenever I was in second grade, I think. So there was this, uh, in, in our school playground, we didn't have a seesaw, but we had this big tire. At the time, it looked like a tractor tire or something. It was really big, and it rested on top of this log that we kind of used as a standing seesaw, if that makes sense. So I remember being on one end of this big tire, and this other kid on the playground, who's a lot bigger than me, being a scrawny little kid, jumps on the other side and flings me backwards, and I land smack flat on my bottom. And I remember that did not feel too good. But that's kind of what it's like whenever we put the sorrows of this life against the joy of the Lord. If you put one on one end, the sorrow, it's going to bring that end of the seesaw all the way down. But then you put the joy of the Lord on the other side, and it's going to fling it way out of the park. And so that's what we're looking at here today. Now you might hear this and be like, is that really true? Is the joy of the Lord really outweighing sorrows by that much? And so I pray that for this morning, that this word of the Lord would be made more clear to you and, and you'd be able to experience it in your own life. So if you will, let's get out your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 16, starting at verse 16. 16, 16, that's easy to remember. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At some of this, his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. This is God's word. So around this time, the disciples have already heard a lot from the Lord. 
So you can imagine that their brains are fried. I mean, here we are months later and we're still in the upper room discourse. There's a lot of information that's coming their way. And so if I were them, my brain would be really tired by here. And so then Jesus throws something else that they don't understand. And so then they're chattering amongst themselves. What does he mean? What is he talking about? In a little while, you'll see me no more. But then in a little while, you will see me. What's he mean? What does he mean? Do you ever remember being in school and the teacher's talking about something and you don't get it and uh, you want to ask a question, but you don't want to be that one person who looks dumb and so you just keep it to yourself, you nod along, you're like, I don't get it. So that's kind of like what's happening here. Not even Peter speaks up and says, I don't get it. And so Jesus, he knows what's going on here. And so out of his compassion, he takes the pressure off of them and he says, Are you asking each other what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more, but then in a little while, you will see me? I can see them being like, yes. And so then he goes on to elaborate on what he means. And so he tells them, you will weep while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now, the first half of this statement that Jesus just made In my opinion, this is one of the saddest pictures in all scripture, weeping as the world rejoices. Whenever we think of this story, the story of the death of Jesus, most of the time we we look at it from Jesus' perspective. We focus on the sorrows and suffering of Jesus, and we, we see this in light of the new covenant, and rightly so. But in order to better understand this passage, we must place ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. And so this is a period of time that Jesus calls a little while. Because in a few hours, Jesus is going to get taken away. He's going to be tried, sentenced, and then put to death on the cross. And so the disciples, they had a smaller view of this than we do. They didn't think of this as the Savior of the world atoning for the sins of all mankind. For them, it was their dear friend and big brother type figure in their life was taken away from them. So it was much smaller in scale, similar to what you and I go through whenever we experience the pain of loss. But there was an added element in here. Of course, they loved him. They regarded him as a really good friend. He took care of them. He protected them in danger, provided for them in need. He led them. But they also called him their king, their Messiah. They accepted him as the son of God. And so there was this spiritual commitment to Jesus that was unlike any other relationship that they had. And so you can imagine the grief that they were going through. Not only did they lose a loved one, but everything that they had worked for for the past three years of Jesus' ministry was seemingly crushed in front of them. In an instant, all of their hopes and their dreams and their joy was just gone. And now if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that this shouldn't have come as a surprise to them, right? Because Jesus has predicted on a number of occasions his death and his resurrection. And for 2,000 years, we've all been asking, why didn't the disciples expect the resurrection? So commentators and scholars have been trying to answer this for a long time. And my hunch is that 
the disciples were so afraid of the idea of Jesus dying that this idea of a Messiah put to death, it just didn't compute. It went against everything that they understood about a Messiah and caused such great distress and fear in them that they couldn't even get to the joy of a resurrection. You'll remember in Matthew's gospel, Peter actually takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. He's like saying, don't talk like this, Jesus. You're not going to die. Things are going to work out well in the end. And you always got to love Peter. He's so well-intended, but he's foolish. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And so without the hope of a resurrection, there was no joy among them during this time. We call it three days, but it's really not three days, as, as in three 24-hour periods. It was part of Friday, the entirety of Saturday, and the beginning of Sunday. And uh, whenever we go through a little while of suffering, we all know that a little while can seem like a long while or an eternity. And to make matters worse, as the disciples and people who loved Jesus were weeping, the Pharisees were over here having a party. This is the day that they have waited for, because for three years, Jesus was making fools out of the Pharisees. They would try to trick him and trap him, but then it always backfire on them, and then Jesus would emerge victorious. And so they were looking of ways to get rid of Jesus, and now they finally got what they wanted. They didn't only delight in his death, but in his suffering. You remember them striking him while he was blindfolded, prophesied of us, Messiah, who hit you? And then up on the cross, if you really are the son of God, come down from there and then we will believe you. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. And so then Jesus dies. And I imagine they threw a big party, got out the best wine, brought out the fatted calf. And they're like, yes, all of our troubles are over. Now things can go back to the way they were before. And now people will realize that this Jesus thing was just a fad. We'll go back to being the top spiritual leaders in our community. And so this is a very bleak, depressing picture. This little while, no doubt, was an eternity to those who were suffering during this time. But the good news is that it really is only a little while because Jesus is not done talking here. He says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And that joy comes with the resurrection because it's here that the joy of the disciples is restored. We see this promise come true whenever John writes in just a few chapters uh, that the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So once they saw him face to face and it was confirmed that yes, this really is Jesus, they were so joyful that it it transcended, it went beyond the sorrow that they experienced before. Because not only were they so happy to be reunited with their loved one, but now they could see that the cross was not a defeat, but rather a victory. That once again, Jesus had proven himself to be greater than the Pharisees, greater than the enemy, and their attempts to thwart him backfired on them. Once again, just like before. In fact, whenever we read of the death of Jesus in the epistles, it's not referred to in a sad sense. It's not like they had this 
PTSD of the trauma of the cross, but rather it's spoken of in joyful terms, as in boasting in the cross, or the cross being our glory. The cross is a good thing. They saw the cross as being the gateway to joy. And so here, <clears throat> what we have here is what I call the joy onion. Some of you are like, that's an oxymoron. Pastor Cameron hates onions, so he'll probably rebuke me after the service is over. But just bear with me here. The outer layer was the layer of the cross. And so here we get to the resurrection. The cross has made way for the resurrection. And so it's by his resurrection power that we are no longer in our sins. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we, or the, if Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins, that we're, we are people to be most pitied. But in, Christ, but in fact, Christ has been raised, and therefore we have been raised up with him. And so because of the resurrection, we know that death has no victory, that death has no sting, but that Jesus reigns, that he reigns forevermore as the king of glory. And now we have every reason to sing his praises. The disciples could see that the past three years were not in vain, but rather they made way for this special moment right here and that greater things are yet to come. We are justified in Christ, and that is our first taste of joy. And so if you know the story, you know that, yes, the disciples are reunited with Jesus, but then he's, he's just going to go and ascend up to heaven, and once again, they'll be separated from Jesus. So then what? So here we get our knife and peel back one more layer of the onion, and we get to Pentecost, Whenever the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, you remember that? In the second chapter of Acts, they were together in the upper, in the upper room, and the, and the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples, filling them and equipping them for the call that had been placed upon their lives. And all throughout this discourse, we see Jesus preparing them for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. He says, I am going away, but I will not leave you as orphans. I am sending you a helper. And so we have learned that the Holy Spirit is the convictor of our souls. We've learned that he is the bringer of peace. And now we're learning that the Holy Spirit is the bringer of joy. And to illustrate this, Jesus uses this example of a woman in childbirth. And so to better understand this part of the text, I conducted what I've called a biblical experiment. I don't know if there's a such term, but there is now. So as you can see, I am a man, I'm not a woman, and therefore I have no experience in the childbearing department. You ladies are like, you're so lucky. And so I decided to consult with someone who does. My wife, Heidi, has given birth to four children. And so then I went up to her and asked her, and this is free of context, she had no idea where I was coming from. I said, whenever you think of each of our four kids, what comes to mind? And so she starts naming these descriptions that outline their personalities, their interests, their gifts, that basically are telling me who they are. 
And then I pointed out to her, not once did you mention the pain that each of them put you through in childbirth. Not once did you mention the physical changes that their pregnancies have uh, put on you ever since then. And in the same way, that's, that's what it is whenever we look at our lives. Because whenever she looks at her four children, she doesn't see four walking reminders of her past pain. She sees four reminders of joy. And so that's how it should be whenever we look at our own lives, that we, that we don't characterize it by the pain and the sorrow that we go through, but we characterize it by the joy of the Lord that comes from the Holy Spirit that fills us from within. And so I'm not done with the experiment. So we went back to this nine-month period whenever the baby was in the womb. And so then I asked her, what did you enjoy about being pregnant? And she told me about feeling the movement of the baby within, looking at her belly and seeing it bubbling with the movement, going to the ultrasound, hearing the heartbeat, um, <clears throat> or going to the doctor, seeing the ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat. And if you know anything about pregnancy, you know that this is the time whenever the mother and the baby start to bond. The baby learns how to recognize the mother's voice. And so then I asked her, okay, so now how does your relationship back then compare with your relationship with our kids now? And she said there's no comparison. Instead of a grainy black and white ultrasound picture, she can not only see them face to face, but she can embrace them. She can get to know them for their personalities, for who they are, and have a real, genuine relationship with them. There's no comparison. And we see the same thing in the disciples' relationship with Jesus. During the three-year ministry while he was on the earth, the disciples enjoyed a special relationship with Jesus. But it wasn't enough. These disciples were immature, they were weak, they were clueless, and <clears throat> it just was not complete. But then whenever the Holy Spirit came and filled them, their relationship with Jesus deepened, and thus so did their joy. And you can see the change from how they were pre-death to post-Pentecost. It's like two entirely different groups of people. And I think if you were to ask any of them, what are your fondest memories of your relationship with Jesus? I wouldn't be surprised that if they told you, my fondest memories are after Pentecost. Because whenever I was with him in person, it was great, but I didn't appreciate everything that he did. I didn't understand what he talked about. I didn't understand where he was coming from. And I messed up a lot. But then once he filled me, I have enjoyed such a deep relationship with him. I found myself becoming more like him and my joy has increased. And you know what? We have access to that same kind of joy. And so it's important to kind of stop where we are and clarify, what is joy? What does it mean to have the joy of the Lord? Well, the first thing that we need to know is that joy comes from God. God is a joyful God. In fact, as Sam Storms puts it, joy is the reason that God created the universe. Wait a minute. 
Didn't God create the universe for his own glory? Yes, he did. But how is God most glorified? God is most glorified when those who he created in his image delight in him above anything else. You see, God within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, enjoys the most pure, perfect, deep, rich, holy joy that's unlike anything that the world has to offer. And God in his love has invited us to partake in that same joy that he has within and among himself. And we can experience that same joy. You see, joy is the gladness of knowing God and abiding in Christ while being filled with the Spirit. Now, I have found that in some circles, particularly those with a more emphasis on head knowledge and and deep theology, they can kind of tend to relegate joy to being a second-class quality of the Christian life. Things like orthodoxy, obedience, reverence, head knowledge, those kind of stuff, those are like top tier. But then you get to joy and it's like, it's a nice bonus. It's, it's good if it's there, but it's not really on the level of these other things. And I want to tell you that that's not how we should look at it. Because joy is an essential, non-negotiable pillar of the Christian life. And it's not to say that these other things are not important. Because let me tell you, they are. I am not diminishing or discounting them in any way. We absolutely need that stuff. So don't get me wrong. But at the same time, to be a Christian is to be filled with joy. To believe in the gospel is to be filled with joy. In fact, the word for gospel in Greek is evangelion, which is where we get, or the euangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism from. And that literally translates into joy news or good news, glad tidings. So whenever we say that we are a gospel-centered church, We're saying we are a joy-centered church, a joyful church. Whenever I tell you I preach the gospel, I'm telling you I preach joy. We, We need to have the best joy that there is. John Piper says, actually no, before that, we've been talking about how Whenever we show our love for Christ, that's shown by our obedience to him. But don't misunderstand this. Obedience is is not just a matter of having a checklist with some items, checking them off. I did this, I did this, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, therefore I love Jesus. That's not how it works. Obedience starts with joy. Whenever we are so filled with joy at what he has done for us, at who he is, at where he is going, at the promises that he has given us, that we are filled with such a deep affection that is just growing and growing and explodes deep inside of us. And that joy and affection causes us to have the desire to honor God and to to, to obey him. It spurs us on to good works, spurs us on to obedience. So behind obedience is joy. And that's how we know that we love God. If the joy of the Lord is inside of us and it results in obedience. John Piper said, joy is the clearest witness to the worth of what we enjoy. And that is so true. 
You can see it in other people whenever they talk about things that are dear to them, things that they're passionate about. You get me talking about smoking and grilling and barbecue, you're going to see me light up and get animated, or guitars or something like that. Earlier this week, uh, my sister was over at our house, and I was on one chair, and then she was with our daughter Ellie doing her hair. And I'm reading something, I don't remember what, but I was really engrossed in it. And whenever I'm concentrated on something, I just tend to block everything else out. My wife can tell you, and she gets frustrated with that sometimes. But uh, I'm just over here reading, and then my sister calls my attention. Hey, Danny, I don't hear. She tries again, still nothing. And then, so then she decides to try to have some fun here. So then she says, hey, Danny, why don't I put your hair in braids and pigtails? I still don't hear nothing. And then she goes, worship? And then I just, what? And my family's been making fun of me ever since for that. But that's, that's so true. Those things that are dear to us, they're like positive triggers in our life that just make us light up. And that's what the Holy Spirit should do with the joy in the Lord inside of us. We ought to be the happiest people that there are. We should be those people that whenever others are around us, their spirits are lifted. We should never be those people that people are around us and you're like, man, there's such a drag to be around. We should be the complete opposite of that, building people up with the joy that is within us. Whenever people enter our gathering, they should be filled with joy. They should sense the joy of the Lord that is alive and well in us. And it should manifest itself in how we welcome people within our midst, with how we love one another and converse with one another. It should show itself in how we lift up our voices and pour out our praise for the Lord God whenever we gather together. And then it should spill over into the other six days of the week. We should be the happiest people there are. And I'm reminded of Paul and Silas. Do you remember the story whenever they were unjustly arrested and beaten and then thrown into jail in Philippi? What were they doing? They were singing God's praises. We did that song earlier this morning, There's Joy in the House of the Lord. I'm so glad the team picked that out for today. Let's pretend that that's the song that they were singing in jail. I guarantee you that they were not mumbling the words out half-heartedly. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy. No. You know that they were belting it out with everything that was within them. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. You know that they were just using everything that was within their disposal to pour out their praise with the joy that was inside of them. It says in Acts that... They were at least loud enough <clears throat> to where the other prisoners could hear them. And just imagine the impression that that made upon them. These prisoners here who were at the end of their rope, who had nothing to live for, they were joyless. But yet hearing these wonderful notes of joy from, the, for, or from Paul and Silas. And they're showing us here that even through undesirable circumstances, what they loved most was clearly radiant, was clearly seen. And this illustrates the truth that Jesus ends this passage with. 
whenever he says that joy can never be taken away from us. Because you see, the joy of the Lord is not circumstantial. It doesn't depend on how, on how well things are going in our life. But his joy transcends all that. Now, I've heard a lot of people <clears throat> make a difference between happiness and joy. They'll say something like happiness is some worldly, fleeting emotion, while joy is an eternal state of being. But if you look at what Scripture says, there's actually no distinction between joy, happiness, gladness. You look at the early church fathers, to the Puritans, to people like Charles Spurgeon, all interchangeable. This is a relatively recent thing that we started to pit happiness against each other. And so it's not wrong to say that God wants us to be happy. I've heard it said God is not concerned about our happiness, but I would tell you that that's wrong. God did not create us to be these walking zombies, solemn, sullen, <clears throat> what's the word I'm looking for? I'm blanking out here. <laughs> Opposite of that. Um, pessimistic. Cynical, while recognizing the truth and knowing it intellectually. That's not how God created us to be. Now, I get what they're saying whenever they make those distinctions, because we're not supposed to be relying on our good moods to get us through life. But God created us to be joyful beings, to delight in Him. We are not supposed to look to those things that can be taken away from us, like our livelihoods, like even relationships, our very physical lives. But yet we find that happiness in who God is. Because we are going to go through sorrow. That's unavoidable. But yet as we go through this sorrow, God's promises can actually bring cheer to our souls. We don't deny our sorrows either and just pretend that everything's okay. Because the joy of the Lord is an intelligent joy that is aware of the darkness that's around us. But it is in that darkness that the joy of the Lord can shine all the brighter. And then we can look at the life ahead with hope because the joy of the Lord is shining through us. Paul puts it well. Whenever he says in 2 Corinthians, he describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And that is a very good motto for all of us to live our lives by. His joy is available for all of you who are in Christ. It's got your name written on it, but it's up to you if you want to receive it and partake in it. So I order stuff from Amazon sometimes, and like an appliance or something like that, and I'll try to put it together, read through the manual. I'll be honest, sometimes I just skip the manual and think I know better. And so then I'll put it together, try to turn it on, and nothing happens. It doesn't work. I found that most of the time, it's not a problem with the product, but rather something that I did wrong, like a step that I overlooked. So I need to go through the troubleshooting section of the back of the manual and then find out what I did wrong. And so whenever we ask the question, why do I not have joy in my life? Sometimes we, got, we need to do a little bit of soul troubleshooting. 
and see what we are doing to get in the way of that joy of the Lord. And so there are four things that we need to consider and ask ourselves if we are finding ourselves without joy. The first thing is, are you away from God's presence? Has your Bible been gathering dust? Is your prayer time relegated to before meals? Is your mind on other things besides walking in the Spirit and living out the truth that is in His Word? If that's you, it shouldn't come as any surprise that there is no joy in your life. If that's you, you need to drop what you're doing and go run to the Father and be in His presence. Pastor Tom read this earlier today in Psalm 16. In the presence of God is the fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Apart from him, we have no good thing. Drop what you're doing, run to the Lord, and rediscover joy. The second thing is related to it. Are you in unrepentant sin? Is there something, a continual, habitual sin that you are doing in your life, that you are engaging in, that is keeping you from experiencing that joy? Because as we've seen in this discourse, joy and obedience are intertwined. You can't separate the two. So if you are not obeying God's commands, you will not have joy. And so if that is you, then I encourage you, I implore you, to confess your sins, to repent, and to turn away. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to, con- to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. And then you will rediscover joy again. The third thing is unlike the first two things in that this is, I think, most of the time not self-imposed. And that is, are you experiencing tragedy, and depression. These things can fall upon us without our bringing them to pass. We have control over how how much we spend time in God's presence. We can keep ourselves from getting into temptation, but sometimes these things happen to us and we cannot avoid them. Sometimes we experience tragedies that just shake us And so we don't feel the sensations of happiness. Some of us can experience depression that brings us down, that takes a toll on our health. Charles Spurgeon, whom I love, he's known as the Prince of Preachers today. He was one who suffered from intense depression. He was preaching a sermon one time in this large church and someone yelled out, fire! And so there was a panic and a stampede of people were trying to escape the doors. And in the process, many people were trampled and some even died. And so he carried the weight of this guilt and it had a toll on his physical health. So much so that he would be in and out of the pulpit. And he would just battle this intense depression, even going through suicidal thoughts. But Spurgeon found that he was still able to experience joy whenever he found that his sufferings were making him more like Christ, that they were making him become a better shepherd, better able to love those who, like him, were going through difficult trials. He found that he was able to understand the love of the Father 
even more deeply. That's why in one of his sermons, he says, despite your tribulation, take full delight in God, your exceeding joy this morning, and be happy in him. What a great quote. And Spurgeon realized that this was an affliction. And so he treated it theologically as well as treating it naturally, doing good things to take care of his mental health. You might need to do whatever you need to do to get through depression. But at the same time, we always know that our joy is found in Jesus Christ with his spirit within us. James tells us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So whenever I look at my own life, I look at the difficult times that I've gone through, and I've seen God's hand in it. I've seen that I have become more like Christ I see that I understand him better. I see that I have a deeper thirst and yearning for him. And I find that I am better able to love others. You know, it's kind of hard to argue with that. Yes, there is sorrow that's bundled up in there too. But the joy that comes from that is so much greater. There is a sense in which I am weeping, but there's also a sense in which I smile. Because I look and I see something beautiful and glorious that God is working within me that I could never bring about myself. I could not plan out the perfect life for myself that would make me into how God wants me to be. But he can. Charles Spurgeon also puts it very beautifully in this quote here. He writes, When the gold knows why and wherefore it is in the fire, it will thank the refiner for putting it into the crucible and will find a sweet satisfaction even in the flames. That is powerful. So there is one more thing that we need to consider. Some of you might need to ask yourself, do I really know Jesus? Because if you don't know Jesus, you will not experience eternal joy. You will find one joy when that runs out, chase another, When that runs out, chase another, and then it's an endless cycle of joy chasing. If you are tired of that, I want to encourage you, come to Jesus and find a joy that no one, that nothing can take away from you. Because his joy is here to stay. And if that's you, I am so happy to talk to you after the service, to tell you what it means to follow Christ and to experience this overwhelming, outweighing joy that I've been talking about. There is no joy like the joy that comes from knowing Christ. We've come here to glorify God this morning. And let me tell you, God is most glorified in you when you are most glorified or when you are most joyful in him. Whenever the sorrows of this life become overwhelming, whenever they seem to become too difficult to bear and boast and rejoice at your expense, there's one thing that I want want you to keep in perspective. Keep in mind that darkness rejoiced for three days, not even three days in a technical sense. 
But since then, we have been rejoicing for 2,000 years. And you know what? We are not anywhere close to being done. And we never will be. Because Jesus is alive. Because we are alive in him. And there is nothing that's going to be able to change that. Jesus reigns. He has given us his joy. And our joy will be complete once we arrive in glory. So be joyful, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we praise you that you are a God of joy. We praise you that you have given your joy to us, that in your grace you have spared us from settling for joy that will run out, but you have given us a joy that lasts forever, Lord. So I pray for everyone in this room who is broken, who finds that the joy in their life is difficult to see. Lord, if, if anyone here is suffering, but yet they recognize that you are still good, that you are still God, and you are still faithful, the joy still is in them, carrying through them in this dark time, Lord. Would you fill us with gladness of heart that the world will look at us and say, I want what they have. I want this joy that never seems to run out. Would you produce in us this infectious joy that affects everyone who is around us? May we not trust in the happiness and joy that comes from the things of the world, but trust in you to make us happy with a joy that is unlike any other in this world, Lord. May, re may we rejoice in the Lord always. May we rejoice. In your name we pray, amen.